Welcome to the podcast for We Hope Glasgow. We're so glad that you're taking the time to listen to this message from Sunday. May it be a blessing to you today. Hey, how's it going? Uh, my name is Crooksy. If you're new here, I'm the family's pastor at Rehope Glasgow. Uh, Brian is off to our campus in Belfast to teach there this morning. So I have got a chance to speak to you today and to speak to you about one of history's most significant events, Jesus' crucifixion. And we're going to look at that and we're especially going to look at John's approach Uh, to the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. But first of all, I want to talk to you real quick about Justin Timberlake. So uh, I watched the Super Bowl this year with Brian and with Ruth and Todd, although Ruth fell asleep almost instantly and like slept for like the duration of the game. And uh, she slept through the halftime show with Justin Timberlake, which is a shame for her because I think it's like the only bit that she was really that interested in. But, you know, it's fine because the performance was, it was fine. Like it wasn't anything super special. Brian especially was a little bit disappointed. He expects a bit more pizzazz from his Super Bowl halftime show. Um, He wanted some of the like costume changes and the guest performances and the giant geometric lions and the dancing sharks because it turns out that Brian is a giant Katy Perry fan and I didn't know that but now I know that's all he could talk about. I liked it because I like Justin Timberlake. I really do like Justin Timberlake and he danced really well and he sang really well and his band were incredible. All the things that you would expect from Justin Timberlake and that's what I would talk about. I think he's great. Brian not so impressed, and as the show goes on, it's like whatever, and he's talking more and more about the Dancing Sharks and the Katy Perry, but then, uh, but then Justin starts uh, into Can't Stop the Feeling, and Todd and Brian turn to each other, and they're like, oh, trolls, <laughs> and I'm like, right, see, the parents are laughing because they know the deal with the trolls, um, But it's like, that's interesting because to me, Justin Timberlake is one of my favorite dudes and he's had a career that has spanned three decades, believe it or not. And to you, he's the guy who sings the song from the Trolls movie. And that's, that's kind of different. And then Ruth wakes up like hours later and she's like, oh, did I miss Justin? And, and did he play Trolls? And they're like, yeah, pal, he played Trolls, sorry. And I was just like, whoa, okay. That's, it turns out that's a thing. And we we all watched the same show, except Ruth, and the way we talked about it would be different because we'd have a different approach to it. I approach it with, I love JT, and they approach it with, I'm a parent and the Trolls movie. And the events were exactly the same, but how they approached it and how we approached it was different. And you can tell that by how we talked about it differently. Um, We're going to look at uh, Jesus' crucifixion today, and we're going to think about how John approaches that, because he has got a unique perspective on the events of the crucifixion that's unique from the other gospel writers, given that he was the only one of the gospel writers who was actually 
present at the time, and that gives him a unique perspective, and it does change how he talks about the events. Like, the events didn't change. It was the same crucifixion. It's just the way that he talks about it has changed, and he's not saying, like, I was there. He makes a point of this. I was there, and you can believe me, and he's not saying that to make some comparison between him and other gospel writers to give him some more credibility. I don't really think there would be any point in doing that, seeing as Jesus' crucifixion is one of history's most verifiable historical events, and you can go to sources in the Bible and in history and confirm that Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts of Jesus' crucifixion are accurate. John says, I was there and you can believe me, because he has a unique perspective, because he has a unique focus for the crucifixion, because he doesn't really focus so much on the events of the crucifixion. And he doesn't even so much focus on the protagonist, like Jesus, like the protagonist of those events. He focuses more on the side characters and their reactions and responses. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke couldn't really comment so much on those because they weren't there and they didn't see them. And maybe those things are less easily verified historically. But we can believe John because he was there and he saw it. So that's the deal. We're going to get into reading the passage in a moment and then dive into what John does focus on as part of his unique perspective. And that's these three themes that he highlights that uh, he wants us to think about why we should believe. He wants us to think about the reaction of the chief priests as what it looks like when we don't believe. And he wants us to look like then what it looks like when we do believe. Those are the three things that we're going to look at today, just so you know where we're going. In the passage, though, these themes are kind of like potholed throughout the, the passage. It's not like a bit on this and a bit on this and a bit on this. So it makes the structure a little bit different whenever we're reading. I'm going to read thematically, which will mean a little bit of jumping around, and it'll mean a little bit of overlap, but we're going to read, and I'm going to try my very best to signpost where we are going so that you can follow along. If you've got your Bible with you today, why don't you go ahead and look up John chapter 19, and we're going to start reading in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's chill. Uh, the words will also be up on the screen as I read. Heads up, though, verse 16 bridges two paragraphs. So I'm going to read all of it, but it contains a bunch of pronouns, uh, which we're not going to read the whole paragraph, so we might not know what John's talking about, so I'm going to replace the pronouns with the actual nouns. Anyway, blah, 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 grammar, grammar, blah, blah, blah. So uh, verse 16 of John chapter 19 says, So then, because of the chief priests, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Therefore, they took Jesus away. Carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Uh, verse 23 when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, apart for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. And they did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what soldiers did. At verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything 
was now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And finally, verse 31, since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. Cool. So John wants to help us to believe. And that's not really a secret or a surprise to us. That's been John's deal since the very start of his account of Jesus' life on earth. He wants us to believe. It is John's perspective, and he is right about this that not only believing that Jesus existed, but going further and believing in him as the one son of God, the one who can forgive our sins is the response to Jesus. In his writing, John doesn't usually tend to include a bunch of scripture references. It's just not what he normally does, not his style, and it considerably less so than other gospel writers, especially Matthew, who includes a bunch. But in this section, John parts from his normal style, and he does include like a ton of callbacks to other places in the Old Testament. The section is dense with them, and most of them are signposted with a phrase like, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And actually, in most of them, he goes on to quote that scripture. But some of them are just left in there unannounced for us to discover for ourselves. Um, These are them. I'm going to go real quick. Um, It's not super important for what we're going to think about what they are, but just so you know, um, we've got Jesus being executed with other criminals in reference to Isaiah 53, verse 12. The soldiers cast lots for his clothes in reference to Psalm 22, verse 18. Jesus' bones aren't broken in reference to Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, which talk about the rules for the Passover lamb. And also in that section references Psalm 34, verse 20. And then finally, his side was pierced in reference to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And for John, that is like a whole bunch of Old Testament chat. And he lays it on thick. But there's something that these references have in common that I would like us to focus on right now. And like usually, I mean, in the past, we've seen Jesus fulfill scripture. And usually it works that like Jesus does a thing and that fulfills something that has been written about him. But Jesus does it and he is active in that. It's his actions that have fulfilled the scripture. But in this section, like almost entirely, we see that someone else does a thing to Jesus that fulfills the scripture and Jesus is passive in it. And I guess Jesus, not I guess, actually, factually, Jesus wasn't in a position then to influence 
what was going on around him. Like he didn't get much of a say on where he was crucified or with whom. And it's not like he was hanging up on the cross being like, guys, I'm not gonna need these clothes again, so why don't you have them? He's just not really doing that. And when it comes to the leg breaking and the side stabbing, he was actually dead then, so he wasn't in a position to influence what was going on. So we can see that this is not some meticulously orchestrated plan that someone had and carefully did so that he could fool a people group into believing in him. That's not what happened here. Because even whenever his influence and control over events is stripped away, everything still happens to fulfill the scriptures. And this backs up Jesus' claim, and from John's perspective, and guess what, he's right again, this proves that Jesus of Nazareth really is who he says he is. He is God, and he really can do what he says he can do. He can save people from their sins, and we should believe in him. Although that makes it sound like Jesus lost control of the universe, and I also don't really think that that's really what happened. I believe that God is in control of the events of history, And just because Jesus had all of this stuff that we've been thinking of over the course of the last month happen to him in the space of 24 hours, like all of the stuff that he's gone through, I mean, humanly, he is as weak as you can be in every way or dead. His influence as a human and his ability to control his own actions is so severely limited or completely limited that as a human, he doesn't have any control over those events. But his deity, his God, hasn't been damaged at all. And God is still completely in control of events. And the fact that these scripture references that John puts in here, the fact that the actions are being done by people who are acting in that moment as God's enemies and who would normally be acting against the will of Jesus, only goes to reinforce John's claim that God is in control and that we should believe him. Even when Jesus' actions are taken out of the equation, God is still in control of events, and his prophecies and scriptures are being fulfilled. He is in control. He works out his purposes. God has known from the foundation of the earth what would be necessary for the salvation of humanity, and he made sure that those things actually happened. And we should believe in him. And believing in Jesus is easy whenever things are easy, but the context of this passage is that things are almost immeasurably awful. And when evil is happening openly around us or to us, Believing in Jesus is so much more difficult, that's so much different, and it's way harder, and it's in those moments that we need to believe, and we need to believe more. I don't think that it is an accident, or even like some kind of divine coincidence, that John includes more scripture references in this section than he normally does. Because seeing as he wants us to believe, and he's writing about us believing whenever circumstances are grim, John points us to where we can go to get a source of help and support and have our belief strengthened when we need it when it looks like everything is falling apart around us or when actually it is falling apart around us. Like I am convinced that seeking God as you navigate life, 
will be of such great importance to you and of such great comfort to you as God helps you to believe, even in the worst circumstances. And I'm taking this right from this section, that the things were really hard and John goes to the scripture more. And that's what we can do as well. I believe that the Bible will be a really helpful way to strengthen your belief whenever you need it the most. John wants us to believe. He gives us a source of help whenever we need it. That's great. And then he chucks in a contrast with what it looks like to not believe and compares that to how much we should actually believe when he focuses on like his second theme, and that's the reaction of the chief priest. So we're going to read again. There's a little bit of overlap, but uh, go with me here for a minute. We're going to start this time in verse 19, um, which says, Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. We're gonna jump to verse 31 since it was the preparation day. The Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. Actually, it was the Passover. Um, they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look on the one they pierced. Okay, so John sets up this contrast between how much credibility the crucifixion of Jesus has and how little belief and credibility the chief priests give it in their response. Which is kind of crazy because they got what they wanted. They wanted Jesus dead and they got it. But how do they react to getting what they wanted? Well, they complain about it. And they complain about the wording of a sign on Jesus' cross, which was a total done thing that every cross had a sign, which essentially read as a warning that was like, this is what happens to you if you do the thing. P.S. Don't do the thing. Don't do it. So that was a done thing. Pilate had every right to do it, common practice, and then they complain about it. So what's the deal? And like for actual, what is the deal? Because Pilate didn't even want to kill Jesus, and they got what they wanted, despite everything looking like it shouldn't happen. Pilate didn't even want to do it, but they go to him and they give him all this, like, are you just going to sit there and do nothing, man? Like, he is running about. He's being the king, and that's dangerous, and you shouldn't like that, and you should do something about it, and you should kill him. And then he does kill him, and he puts up a sign that says, this is what happens to kings around here. And they're like, I bet he's no actually a king, though, is he? <laughs> and you're like, serious? Like, come on, like, their hypocrisy is nauseating. 
And it doesn't stop there. Like the next thing that they want is the bodies taken down for the Sabbath. And they want them taken down for the Passover. And this is the right thing to do. They are right about that. It is good. And it is right to observe the Passover properly. And it is good and it is right to honor the Sabbath day. This is a Ten Commandment. It's important to do. And they want to do it. You know what else is a Ten Commandment? Don't lie. But they seem to be completely fine with their judicial and political corruption. That's not even a thing. Oh, wait. That's a thing. You know what else is a Ten Commandment? Don't murder. And they seem to be completely fine with murdering Jesus. What are you going to do? Oops. And I mean, not even oops. They are just completely hypocritical about it. So completely hypocritical. It's crazy. It's just so crazy. And we've talked about how John approaches uh, this passage and, and these events, but it's important as well to think about how we approach these events because that can change a lot of how we interact with with the events. And sometimes when we read the Bible, it's really easy to fall into this trap where we oversimplify things and we end up making them a case of like the goodies against the baddies. And quite often we would rather associate ourselves with the goodies and disassociate ourselves with the baddies. And we don't want to think that we're like them. We want to think that we're like the goodies. So in the case of this passage, we're like, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I'm with Jesus on this. Those chief priests were wrong. They're total hypocrites. And I mean, yeah, they are total hypocrites. But if you side with Jesus, who has nothing to learn, then don't expect to learn anything. You can just miss the lesson that is right there for us. And actually, it's more helpful for our spiritual maturity if we approach events in the Bible with humility and say, I'm going to side with the baddies. I'm going to associate myself with the baddies if we must put those terms on them so that I can learn the things that they should have learned and we can grow in maturity. It's important to approach these events with humility, and it's important to approach these events with a healthy amount of self-reflection. And I say a healthy amount because um, I know that there are people among us who, like, we are more likely to be a bit more self-critical, and we'll probably need to balance out our self-reflection with an understanding of God's grace. And I know that there are probably some among us as well who are more inclined to be self-forgiving, and we need to balance out our, our approach to these events and our self-reflection with a better understanding of God's holiness. That's what uh, we need to do. So just uh, as you self-reflect, just be careful um, that you're not being too hard on yourself or you're not being too easy on yourself. The chief priests are definitely being way too easy on themselves. They're being really self-forgiving. And I mean, they knew that lying was a Ten Commandment. They know the Ten Commandments. They knew that it was wrong. And they knew that murder was wrong. But they are willing to tolerate those things in their lives because they've convinced themselves that it is for the greater good. And they are willing to give themselves a break because, I don't know, it's for the greater good, at least from their perspective. And their hypocrisy is acting as a barrier to their belief. And this is the big thing 
the big lesson that we want to take away today. Tolerating sin in our lives hinders our belief. And I mean, that sounds quite obvious, but the actual practicalities of it, quite often, it might be obvious. It was probably obvious to those guys that lying and murder was wrong. But are you willing to tolerate it? Do you know? Are you willing to tolerate it? And, and we want to associate ourselves with the chief priests so that we can learn the lesson that they should have lived. And so that, wait, hang on. I'm sneakily calling you hypocrites. And you're probably not delighted about that. But it does beg the question, if we want to learn the thing, are there areas in your life that you are tolerating sin? And maybe you're justifying this thing that you do or think or whatever to yourself for whatever reason it may be, which makes you think, I know this is wrong, but... Or, yeah, but I do other things that are good. But this thing, like, I, I'm just going to let that slide. Are there areas in your life where you're tolerating sin? Jesus had a bunch to say about how if you broke one law, you broke them all. And he also had a bunch to say about how you should take a plank out of your own eye before you try helping anybody else take a speck of dust out of their eye. And I'm going to come here and talk to you about hypocrisy, and it would be extremely hypocritical of me to try and do that, given that when I was like reflecting on this, when I was writing it, even whenever I was typing the words onto the page, I'm just there thinking, I can identify so many things that I need to address in my life before I would be in any position to ask somebody else to self-reflect on their sin. And I am nervous about talking about this because I am aware that I've got a lot of stuff in my life that could do with a healthy amount of self-reflection. So my choices in that are either I can ignore this and not mention it to you and allow my sin cycle and maybe some of your sin cycles to continue, or I can bring it up and say, we need to repent, you guys, and do, do you want to join me in this? Because Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and eternally, if you have given your life to Jesus, then eternally your sins are dealt with and forgiven. But in the immediate context, our sin acts as a barrier to our belief. It damages our relationship with Jesus and it brings hurt to the other people around us. So in our immediate context, we need to repent of that sin. And the way that we can do that is by identifying what the thing that we're doing wrong is and then repenting by doing the opposite of that thing. Part of being sorry is showing that you're sorry by doing the opposite. Join me in this. Like I know that I've got a bunch of stuff going on and I'm sure uh, that, I'm not sure, I'm assuming that you might be sitting there and you're able to identify something in your life. Join me in repenting and moving on because Jesus has died for our sins. And if we tolerate sin in our life, it will hinder our belief. But 
if we put sin to death in our life by repenting, then it will strengthen our belief. Then it will help our relationship with Jesus and then it will bring blessing to the other people around us. And that's, that's what we want. Let's learn the lesson that, the, that those chief priests should have learned. How we approach these events is important. We need to do it with humility so that we don't miss the lesson. But there's another uh, example of how you can respond and how you can approach these events, which comes in John's final theme in this passage. And this one has a little bit more to do with what Jesus uh, does. Um, So we're going to read the last time, uh, picking up this time in verse 25, which says, Standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother... His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And then we'll jump down to verse 38. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Oh, sorry, this is verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Cool. How we approach these events can change depending on what you have got going on in your life and what is on your plate. And if you have been dealing with any of the stuff that has come up in the last month, like the betrayal issues, if you're dealing with the hurt that comes with uh, someone lying about you, or indeed you're dealing with the hurt that you've caused to somebody else by lying about them, or if you're going through a period of personal suffering, that will affect how you approach these events. And that is a good thing. That's a good thing to do. And quite often in church, we talk about how like we've all got our baggage, but we leave it at the door so that we don't have a distraction whenever we come in. And I don't think that that's always particularly helpful. And it's not really what we see in this section of the passage. We see a bunch of people who have got a bunch of stuff going on and they act in accordance with that stuff. They bring it with them. So if we look first at Mary, Jesus' mother, she's dealing with the death of her firstborn son, but also like thrown into the mix is the uncertainty of who 
will be providing for her once Jesus is dead because we're kind of left to assume that since Joseph isn't mentioned at all that he is already dead and as the first point it would be Jesus' job to, to uh, provide for Mary but very soon he is going to be out of the picture. And Jesus is going through the most intense physical pain. This is one of the last things he says. And he is going through such spiritual torture and anguish that we don't even have words for it. And in the middle of that, Jesus' focus in that moment is caring for his mum. And some of the last things he says is, he's going to look after you and turn into one of his closest friends. Can you, can you look after my mum? Like his weight on his shoulders there and on his soul there and yet his prime motivation and the thing on his mind is caring for his people for his mum he's incredible he's just like his love when you think about love man he's incredible there is this thing in uh, the parenting course that I think it's actually in the marriage courses too. It's this acronym, it's called HALT, and it's to help you identify that when your kid is upset, what things might be affecting how they are reacting. And it's like, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Are they hungry? Are they anxious? Are they lonely? Or are they tired? Because, I mean, this is for kids, but it also works for adults. Like when you're stressed, you are probably going to be more likely to act insularly and be thinking about yourself so that whenever those morons around you do something tiny, that you might end up reacting more strongly than you would otherwise. And that can happen for simple things like hunger. So considering what Jesus is dealing with right now and how he can keep his focus on the people that he loves and that he has made. It's just outrageous. So good. Even when he's going through all that pain, nothing changes Jesus' heart of love for his people. Nothing. Not even the worst suffering that anybody can imagine changed Jesus' heart of love for his people. Jesus is willing no matter what to rescue and provide and restore, no matter what, he's, he's incredible. And when we look at, at Joseph and uh, Nicodemus, they kind of get a shout out for being scared of the Jewish leaders. Like one is like openly says he, he kept his belief in Jesus a secret because he was scared. And the other one's like, remember he came at night in chapter three because he was scared. They are identified as the people who were scared. And what they do in this passage is they completely out themselves as being believers by going to Pilate and asking, can we remove the body and look after it? And remember, Jesus was deliberately executed in a public place where everybody would be able to see that. They're not going to be able to do this in secret. They can't even wait till nighttime because by then the Sabbath will have started and then they would have been ceremonially unclean and not able to celebrate the Passover. No way, you can't do that. You've got to go daylight 
in front of everybody and do the thing that shows that you are a disciple of Jesus. They saw God's love for them. And then they believed. And then they moved out of a place of fear and into a place of action and obedience. The transformation there is a big, big deal. A really big deal. It's really cool. And when we experience God's love, and when we believe, God will move us out of a period of fear and into action and obedience. Or maybe it's not fear that's really influencing how you live uh, for Jesus at the moment, but he can move you out of whatever it is that you're dealing with and into a period of action and showing your belief by doing the things. I love that Joseph and Nicodemus move out of their secrecy and fear and show publicly that they believe in Jesus. I love that. Come to God with your stuff and bring it not to the door, bring it to the cross, receive his love, receive his forgiveness and receive his restoration so that you can move out of that period of like fear or hurt or whatever it is and into the freedom to be like an active disciple, doing the things in obedience to God and following how he would want you to act. It's cool. How we approach these events is really important. It's gonna be Easter soon and it's kind of been funny talking about Jesus' crucifixion in the lead up to Easter. And I've kind of taken John's lead in how he approaches these events, that he doesn't really talk a bunch about the whole like wrath of God thing or the forgiveness of sins thing. He focuses on the side characters and their responses because he wants his readers to believe. And I'm following his lead in that. But I mean, Jesus died for your sins and uh, God is still not happy about sin, but Jesus died for you and he loves you. And what John wants to make sure that we do is to move out of that sin. Don't be like the chief priests. Learn from them. Learn what they should have learned and then be like Mary and John who did what Jesus told them to do. Be like Nicodemus and Joseph who did what was right and fitting and the final act of service to Jesus as a human by burying him properly. Be like that. Do what you can do. How we approach this passage is important. And I hope that uh, it's been helpful to you. I hope that it's been encouraging and hopeful to you to see how you can move out of those places of sin and into a place of holiness by receiving Jesus' love, um, and I hope that that is able to make as much of an impact in your lives as it did uh, for uh, Joseph and, and for Nicodemus. Um, I have got a few challenges for you this morning so that uh, you can get a chance to practice what uh, John has highlighted through his accounts of these events. One kind of for each theme. The first one, uh, I'd like to challenge you to take some time in your week to read the book of Esther and reflect on how God is in control of the events of history. If you've not been reading Esther before, it's 10 chapters long, 
And the story is so good. It is so good. One of my favorite uh, stories in all of the Bible. Um, if you're a parent, bonus points if you read it with your kids. Um, it's really good. It doesn't actually mention God in the book. So you've got to read between the lines to see how God is in control of what's going on. And then I want you to use that as a springboard to think about how God is in control in the events of your life. Like maybe that could be what's going on with you right now, or maybe that could be like something in your past, how you can look back on it and reflect how, yeah, now I can see how God was in control and holding all that together. So have a read at Esther and do some thinking. Uh, the second uh, challenge that I would like you to do is I would like you to pray. And perhaps whenever we were talking about the sin stuff that you're able to identify already something that you think needs addressing in your life. But if, if you haven't thought of uh, one, why don't you ask God and see what he thinks? And if he brings something to your mind that he would like to address, maybe as a matter of priority, I want you to confess and I want you to repent. Confessing, telling Jesus, I shouldn't have done this. I was wrong to do this. I agree with you that this is wrong. So I want to do what is right. Help me to repent. Help me to do what is right. And I find it helpful in a repentance process if I like write down and like make a plan for like practical steps that I can take. Like some practical steps that can help me to stop doing the thing that I don't want to do. And then some practical steps that I can take to start doing the thing that I do want to do to help me to stop or to start doing the opposite. So have a think, get some practical steps together, and then do it, actually do it. And the last thing that I would like to challenge you to do is to do some journaling. So uh, I'd like you to reflect on a time in your life where you saw an increased amount of obedience, like you took a big it doesn't have to be big, it can be any, it can be any obedience step, but a time when you took an obedience step, get your journal out, I want you to write down the story of what happened that might help you to remember more details or like piece the story together, I want you to write it out, and then I want you to think about what events led up to that obedience step, or what was your like prime motivation that drove you to make that obedience step, and what were the outcomes of that obedience step, what happened in your life as a consequence to you choosing to walk with Jesus? I gotta say, I'm not uh, a super journaler. Um, I'm, I'm not so much of a writer. I am a talker, you might have noticed. Um, and I used to do this thing which I affectionately call audio journaling, which is really when I used to talk to myself in the car but I find that helpful, just a space where you can like know that nobody's really listening to you, so you can like talk out loud and piece things together. Or if you have got someone who you think, I could talk to them about this, and you could do some verbal process, and if that helps you, then that's cool. The benefit of having it written down is then you can go back to it later and read it 
and maybe things will be more clear then, or maybe you have forgotten about that, or some of the joy that that brought to you has been lessened, and you can go back to it, and you can receive that joy again. Writing it down is cool, um, but if you're taking, like me, you're kind of still taking those baby steps into journaling, um, might I recommend talking to yourself? It doesn't have to be in the car, but uh, maybe just not, like sitting in the park. Uh, Cool. Uh, Let me pray uh, real quick. Uh, God, thank you for what you've done, and you are incredible. Your love is great. And how, like, all of these details throughout history pointed to you and who you were going to be and what you were going to do, and then you were, you were that person. You are that God, and you did those things, and we can receive your love, and we can move out of our sin and deal with it. You help us to repent. God, you're great and we can move into obedience and action for you. God, we love you. Thank you for how you make us more like you. You're really good to us. Amen.